Welcome to What I Wish I Knew by Dental Head Start, your weekly mentoring session thanks to cpdjunkie.com.au. Hey everyone, this is Chidam Kapel, and welcome to the What I Wish I Knew podcast by Dental Head Start. There is this mysterious link between our airways, um, how we sleep, how we breathe when we sleep, uh, reflux, our jaws, parafunction, TMD, and it's not completely clear to someone who's learning it for the first time. In fact, I've done a whole number of courses on these and there's still a lot of question marks in my head. Today, we talked to Dr. Rowan Krishnan. He recently completed a master's in the field of dental sleep medicine and how it relates to orofacial pain. So he discusses the really, really unique and important role that dentists have to play in the that initial diagnosis of sleep disorders and airway disorders two conditions that can actually be the underlying causes of so many other chronic and really debilitating um, problems for patients like, you know, like pain, orofacial pain, um, reflux, blood pressure, heart problems. So he talks about how dentists are really uniquely positioned to assess and diagnose these patients and also be involved in the management of these um, because ultimately we can uncover what can be a, a really life-changing life diagnosis for a patient. What on earth is sleep dentistry? Yeah, so great question. So I probably should have clarified when I spoke to you about it initially that I probably call it dental sleep medicine for that exact reason. And I slipped up and said sleep dentistry. So now we're talking about IV sedation and all the rest of it. That's not what I meant to talk about, but it it is an important topic as well. But dental sleep medicine is something that I'm really passionate about. I did my um, master's in orofacial pain and I did a whole semester on sleep medicine. Um, And it's, I mean, we work in the airway space, we work in the mouth and we get so many signs that we see um, and our patients tell us so much about themselves uh, that we have, we're in a really unique position to be able to help them with a whole number of issues that relate to sleep dentistry or dental sleep medicine, if I can use that term. No, I think it's um, really interesting. You're right in that the mouth is the gateway to the body, the, not only the uh, beginning of our gastrointestinal tract, but of our respiratory tract. And it seems to me like uh, dental sleep medicine, there were a lot of unknowns or we, there were fewer correlations between um, airway issues and things that manifested in the mouth um, and, and these connections were only really well-researched, I guess, in the last couple of decades. Am I wrong or do, did absolutely. I just fall asleep in dental school? No, absolutely, fall asleep. I like what you did there. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think... So just to give you an, a context of, of what I do when I look at a patient or when I see, speak to a patient is I conceptualize the patient in biopsychosocial terms. So that's a pretty kind of in vogue term at the moment, but it really does encapsulate what we should be thinking about as dental practitioners and beyond that, what we should be thinking about as health, what we should be thinking about as healthcare practitioners. Now, 
when I look at a patient and when, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, if you do this as well, we get a look at their mouth opening. We can see how far they open their mouth. We get to have a look at what their muscle tension is like. They talk to us about how they're feeling. Do they wake up in the morning feeling lethargic? Do they feel like they've got neck pain or head headaches? Um, what medications are they taking? Are they taking antidepressants? Do they feel like their mood is off? We have so much information about their social history. We know so much about them as a person, what, whether they work night shifts or not, whether they get much sleep at all or not, whether they give themselves an opportunity to sleep. These things are so important for us to be able to assess an individual's ability to be able to sleep and have a good quality and quantity of sleep. And that is um, so important for their overall health and well-being, but it also relates so much to what we do in dental practice as well. So what are the common things that um, we you would typically diagnose in patients that present with uh, sleep medicine issues or things that manifest in the oral cavity? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think I was just talking about the history just then, but then as soon as we start to do the next stage, of course, is examination, we start to look at mouth opening, we start to look at muscle tension, we start to look at wear on teeth. And that's something that, you know, whether we can see wear on all teeth or some teeth, uh, whether it's erosive or attritional or abrasive, if it starts to look attritional and it looks like there is some sort of parafunctional tooth wear and the patient's got um, uh, signs of uh, reflux or potentially also, um, uh, you know, sore muscles, tight jaws, stiff neck, um, and then we combine that with or and or combine it with a small airway space, we can start to have some, uh, and when I say that I mean you can't see the tonsils. So the thing that I look at when I, as soon as someone opens their mouth is are they able to open their mouth? Because that gives me a look at jaw function very sim- very simplistically, look, gives us a look at whether they can physically open and close their mouth without any pain or obstruction. I look at whether there's any deviation of the jaw when they open because that gives me an idea of what, why or what could be happening in terms of what type of dysfunction could be occurring and why. Um, gives me an inkling anyway and then when I look at their mouth when they open I look at how much of the tongue and surrounding tissues in that um, in that airway is being obstructed so can I see the tonsils can I see the uvula Um, how much of the uh, of the sort of back of the um, the throat can I see just in real simplistic terms not even going into hard anatomy here but we can gain a lot from just the first initial impressions we get from even looking at a patient to determine whether they have issues. And to your second question or the question that you initially asked there, what sort of issues might they have? I mean, it could be anything ranging from narcolepsy to obstructive sleep apnea, a central sleep apnea. It could be um, restless leg syndrome. It could be uh, a, f- a mechanical obstruction in, in the um, upper part of the airways. So, I mean, those sort of things could border more into ENT or sleep physiology or respiratory medicine. Some might be a little bit more dental related, but the point is that we're right in that space. So we have an opportunity to see whether there's an anatomical deficiency, like a retruded mandible uh, or a sort of um, a, a large tongue, Um or if there's something else at play, whether it be uh, more centrally mediated um, in the brain, 
um, psychologically mediated or physically that they their time constraint or their life socially doesn't really allow them to incorporate all of the uh, mechanics to allow them to have a good sleep purely because of time constraints, etc. So, I mean, I could talk about this for you know for a long time in terms of where we go with this and all the rest of it, but just to give you a bit of a simple overview, that's where I would start. Yeah, yeah, and also I think pharmacologically mediated issues, which is really really common now with um, a large percentage of the adult population taking antidepressants, that's um, known to be related with airway issues, parafunction, etc. So gone are the days where you see worn down teeth, you think grinding and just take a mould and make a splint. We don't do that anymore, right? That's not the sequence of assessment and diagnosis. Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, splint therapy has its place, definitely. Um, but I think to simply prescribe a splint for um any one of those cases, I, I think you're probably not doing justice to your patients in that regard. And you can see from my description of how the, the various natures of presentation of a patient when they come to see you from anything from a, a sort of a, a narcolepsy type situation or an insomniac all the way through to someone who just doesn't have the time or someone who's got some type of muscular or functional impairment, there are so many different issues that we might be able to see across that spectrum. And so to all treat them with the same thing, I think would be a little bit too basic for what we know now. Um, yes, yes. And and also if the cause is, if airway obstruction is um, a factor, potentially putting a splint in their mouth, especially if they have a, retruded jaw or already or they're already a bit class two in, inclined it, it could further obstruct or get to struggle with their airway and they're the people that probably spit their splints out in the middle of the night yeah and, and and you know sometimes people might even might even wear a splint and think you know what i'm getting some benefit or practitioners might think oh, I'm, i've prescribed a splint and there's some benefit to it so why do i bother doing all the rest and my answer to that would be that you might be treating the end stage of what's going on and making that little bit better, but there's all these causative factors further down, f- further before that we've actually missed, that we haven't diagnosed or that we haven't actioned, which could actually prevent the end stage grinding that we see or the end stage clenching that we see. And that's my point is that we're ge- becoming even more preventative in terms of and more diagnostic and um, really immersing ourselves more into the medical aspect of what we do in in dentistry, which is really, uh, I suppose, a, a fascinating field, but something that we shouldn't feel fearful about entering into. Um, we're not supposed to have all the answers. I, I think we're we're just supposed to know if um, there's a problem and to to perform enough thorough investigations, have the conversations and think a little bit more beyond just um, what we can do and think what we can do for our patients. Aligners are becoming an integral part of practice and whether you are new to aligner therapy or an experienced practitioner, the opportunity is vast. But how do you do that well and how do you do that profitably? Well, Dr. Jeff Hall and Dr. Jesse Green have got together to help you with both of these key problems in aligner therapy. 
Dr. Jeff Hall is going to teach you how to do clear aligners to a high standard and give you the confidence to be able to treatment plan and troubleshoot your patients. And Dr. Jesse Green is going to show you how to do this more efficiently, more profitably, and to get more patients like these into your practice. Solving these problems and getting you profitable in clear aligners is what Clear Aligner Excellence, their new education platform, is all about. It also gives you huge discounts on the aligner lab fees. There's almost no reason not to find out more. Clearex.com.au If we just use some like a real life scenario, let's um, say you have a new patient, they come in, they've been complaining of facial pain, TMD pain, you look in their mouth immediately, you notice that their front teeth are pretty flat, they are a little thick around the neck. What is your, I guess, your diagnostic process and then what are the typical things you might diagnose and then how would you go on to manage it what are the options yeah, for the patient great. so i might even simplify that scenario even more and just say let's just say the end diagnosis is that they have obstructive sleep apnea um, with associated parafunctional bruxism let's say that's the diagnosis are you happy with that let's just work with on a case like that if that was what we were presented with and we were presented with lots of other things that led us to believe that that could be a differential diagnosis. The first thing I would talk to the patient about is um, what have they done to ameliorate their situation? And if they've done nothing or if they've seen no one for it, that's a really easy goal to kick because the first port of call there is to be referring them to their GP with a letter, strong recommendation for them to be getting a sleep study. If we get a sleep study, that's the only way we can absolutely confirm that the patient that we've got is experiencing um, multiple apnea events that are obstructive in nature. And <clears throat> and so I think that 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 would be the first port of call for us is to actually refer, make the appropriate referral. But it's not just a referral. Uh, uh, say say Anara and and. And, and don't worry about it anymore. We're actually actively managing it now because we are now at the fulcrum of this referral process. So we are actually, <clears throat> so, so we're actually going to going to be getting correspondence with the GP and or the respiratory physician, having a look at what the recommendations are, whether they do actually in fact have that as a diagnosis, and then we've got to work through the options. So gold standard for obstructive sleep apnea is CPAP machine for the patient to wear at night. Some people like wearing it. Some people don't like wearing it. But what the GP doesn't know is how retruded that mandible is, um, how big that tongue is, whether the, the, the patient has other stresses outside of that, which might be more psychological or social, like a recent divorce or stressful exams um, or the things that we might intimately know about because we're their dental practitioner. We're their practitioner that sees them all the time. We know so much more about them than the sleep physician would know seeing them for the first time. And because we're in that unique position, it's incumbent on us to draw all of the information together for the betterment of our patient. So if they um, go along to their GP, and by the way, from a practical point of view, do you ever 
have resistance from your patient to go down the path of their GP? And are there any alternatives? Yeah, look, not really. Um, the 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 thing is that sometimes I, if you do have resistance or if you do feel like they might have a, a, a reservation about seeing their GP for whatever reason or they would prefer not to see their GP or they don't have a regular GP, which is actually not as common as uncommon as you think, you can we can actually refer directly to ENT. Um, I, I used to think that we'd have to go through the GP to refer to an ENT, but ENT seems to be able to take our the ENTs seem to be able to take our referrals and um, the patient just check, but it, it's worth checking that they can claim through Medicare if they decide to go see the ENT through the dentist. But um, it, it is, in my experience, something that we use and it, it all works out okay. So they can see an ENT specialist through us and, and transition that way. But again, we're actively managing the process as the primary fulcrum of that referral process. The patient may end up not opting to go for a CPAP. And then there might be options like a mandibular advancement splint, like a, um, a, a traditional occlusal splint. There might be an option for the patient to be sort of on magnesium tablets or um, to, for, for us to work with the GP for some uh, serotonin-related therapy or, or um, melatonin-related therapy to help regulate the circadian rhythms that the patient's experiencing. There are so many different avenues for treating sleep disturbances, depending on what the sleep disturbance is. But the only way that we're going to be able to facilitate the process is by actively being involved in the referral pathway. And sometimes people ask me, well, if I'm not actually doing that, how do I bill for my time? That's a whole nother Pandora's box in terms of what our itemization of services should, should reflect because I think it personally it should reflect a lot of lot more of our brain power and what we actually do behind the thought that we put together with treatment plans that we put together for patients rather than just what we do physically. I think we're more than just um, operators. We are physicians, diagnosticians first before we're operators. But I think that um, from a private practice perspective, because that's my preponderance, that's my leaning give, being in private practice, when you manage a patient like that, so I won't use the word holistic, I'll say so thoroughly, the patients are forever grateful and they'll refer 20 people to you. And that's been my experience. And if you're in this game for wanting to be in this game for 20 years or 30 years, there is no better um, thrill than having fulfilled your patient's um, requirements beyond compare and then having them refer people to you because they were so happy with the with the treatment that you provided. Um, and in this, ex this case, I'll give the example of the expertise that you provided and the care that you provided. Can I ask a really dumb question? I never really understood how airway issues or sleep disturbances actually cause TMD issues or parafunction what is the physiological um, link there? Yeah, great question. And, and there are so many physiological links and so many different pathways to consider. <clears throat> I'll give you one because I, if, I, if I sort of say one, um, I don't want it to be on record as the only way that, um, you know, a sleep disturbance may lead to a uh, sort of a, a jaw movement or bruxism. But there are many different ways that this could happen. But I'm, I'll give you one as an example so you can see what 
uh, one link might be. So in a sleep study, when we look at sleep studies, if there are disturbances or apnea events, sometimes immediately after an apnea event or in and around the apnea event, on an EEG, we'll see... um, so on a sleep study, when they do the um, electronic recordings, we'll see disturbances of the jaw. That is that the jaw is actually the, the electromyography that picks up, picks up muscle movement in and around the jaw, in and around the time when there's a disturbance. So what the link there is that, um, that a, dis, a sleep disturbance when we're in a particular stage of sleep, and I don't want to get too technical about the sleep medicine side of things, but those disturbances are very closely linked and causative in uh, parafunctional movements of the jaw. And so the more movements, that the more disturbances that you have or the less likely you are to go into a deep sleep, the more likely you are to potentially um, grind your teeth or clench your teeth or have parafunctional movements. So that's one way that that can um, uh, that type of pathway can be uh, sort of yeah can be put forward. Now, pretend I'm a patient. My sleep studies just come back. I've got um, moderate sleep apnea and I've got TMJ, like chronic jaw pain every morning, every all day headaches. How would you do- explain that to me in in patient terms yeah so so i suppose the the way that i describe by that stage i've spoken to the patient enough to get them educated as to what's going on so they they understand that they're and and it all comes back to what they've come in with their chief complainers if it's a headache we link it back to the headaches if if it's grinding we link it back to the grinding if it's um Jaw pain, we link it to that. If it they, if it, they can't open their mouth, we link it back to that. So we're trying to put it in their frame of reference so it's relevant to them. There's no point us talking about something that's completely irrelevant to them. So I try not to bog patients down with stuff that is either A, above, uh, you know, will go over their heads or B, that's not relevant to their situation. So if there's someone that comes in and they're getting headaches and we're trying to get to the bottom of why they're getting headaches and a stiff neck, we might look at it and say, look, all the investigations that we're doing are we're doing to try to eliminate the headaches that you're having in the morning when you wake up. And we've found that um, through the sleep study and through everything that you've told me and all the measurements that we've taken, that you're actually waking up with a headache. And so that's the only time you're getting it. So what you're doing at night with your sleep is probably not helping your headache in the morning um i try not to use words direct linking words like your poor sleep is causing your headaches because the thing is that we may not really know the full extent of all the causative factors and the causative factors are usually so multifactorial they may be related to anything from the patient having too many coffees to the patient looking at a blue light before they go to bed which stimulates um, electromyographic activity which stimulates, which leads them to probably have a less likely chance of going into a deep sleep, et cetera, et cetera. So there, there are so many things. Diet can be a cause of why patients are getting headaches. There could be other neurological causes that we don't know because we haven't done the work for that and I don't have the, and don't have the expertise to make those diagnoses. So I think all we can say is that things are, th- these things that we 
have identified are probably making your headache worse or potentiating your headache. So we try and look at patients always want solutions, but patients also want diagnoses. My, in my mind, sleep medicine is such a multifactorial field with so many diagnoses that for us to go into the, into the, the realm of, of making diagnostic um, decisions and then making treatment plans on that, I think we have to have a f- really good understanding of what dental sleep medicine is. And to that end, I'd implore people to go and educate themselves on it. The more you understand about it, the better your diagnoses will be and the better your treatment plans will be. It's 2022, a time where cloud-based software is enhancing every aspect of our lives. So why not leverage those same capabilities in something we use every day, our dental practice management software. Imagine a platform rethought from the ground up, intuitive and intelligent, using the possibility of today's technology for your patients and your business. A solution that optimizes our daily workflows, creating the edge that modern dentists need to stay competitive and connected. Principal Practice Management Software is this solution. Efficient, intelligent, intuitive. Because it's 2022 and you expect better. Go to principal.dental to learn more. So for a lot of young dentists out there who want to take a deeper dive into this subject, are there any particular um, courses you would recommend or um, educational programs that you've done? Actually, you've done a master's on this. Yeah, so the master's I did was in um, orofacial pain management, and I think that's fantastic. Um, the, uh, the, the thing I would say is to look at all of your options that you have. So your state branch ADA will have courses on sleep medicine. Your um, federal branch ADA will have state will have courses on it. The universities that you went to probably will have courses on it. The Royal College will have courses on it. Um, I mean, this is this is becoming a really big topic now, um, and rightly so. So many of the patients that we see have undi- undiagnosed sleep disorders um and we can do so much to treat them not just with in terms of what we can do with um, interceptive orthodontics or with um occlusal appliances but with the advice that we give our patients with the referral pathways that we entrust them with um even with the dietary and sleep hygiene modifications that we make there are so many things that we can do to I call it I call it circuit breakers. So if there's five things that the patient's doing that is probably leading them to have that headache in the morning because they're uh, from clenching at night and being stiff through their neck, there's probably if we can break the circuit on three or four or five of those things, we're going to really make inroads into making their lives easier, to improving their well-being, to improving their sleep, their um, and reducing their pain, and and there's there's no better feeling than that. I really think that it's it's such a fulfilling thing once you manage a a patient who has um, a sleep disorder. Perfect. You know, most people in in my dental school we had zero on um, this subject. It wasn't until I did a I did like a course through Somnomed, and they're selling at mandibular advancement splints. I didn't even know. 
you might be able to give a patient a mandibular advancement splint or give them a occlusal splint or give them whatever. It's probably going to help them. But the thing is that like you're helping them in one of 10 ways that you could help them. And if you provided them with the nine other ways that you could help them before you give them that 10th mandibular advancement splint or whatever it is that you decide to give them, they might actually get better without you giving them that. And they'll thank you for that. Or, or you might actually go, they might actually be getting like a 15% reduction in, uh, in pain. And, you know, they might be getting like, a, I don't know, 20% reduction, uh, improvement in function from an occlusal splint. But if you, Tell them to do self massage, pain management, uh, self you know self ma- uh, massage, heat pack at night before bed, sleep hygiene, make sure that their posture is right, make sure that the mattress is good for them, look at their diet, make sure they're not eating sugar, tell them to cut out alcohol and and caffeine before bed, tell make sure that they're drinking enough water so they stay hydrated, ensure that they've got um, th- they might need magnesium before they go to bed, look at their pharmacological. Uh, factors and see if there's anything there that they need to speak to GP about that might be perpetuating the grinding or the um, sleep disturbances. Look at. Did you ever do you ever use um, Botox uh, like as a symptom relief point of absolutely. view? Absolutely, Botox is a wonderful circuit breaker. So, um, me personally, I work in a multidisciplinary clinic, so I've got a. I w- and we can you can put this on the. I don't mind if you put this on the podcast as well, but. I work with a um, ENT, uh, a physio who's a PhD in in TMD, uh, and also a respiratory physician. So, the A team. So yeah, so we basically we see patients together. Um, we might see we've only just started it, but we might do like one every six weeks and see like eight patients that all are, have complex histories and need multidisciplinary management, and we see them together and we charge them one fee. Um, wow. So you just um, were able to like get together and come up with this service yeah, for your patients? Yeah. As far as I know of, it's the only one in Australia. Um, we're, we're still in, in – it's still in its infancy in terms of, you know, how it's working and, and what we can do, but we've already found we've, we've made a, a big difference to, to patients and I've certainly learned a lot. It's been great for me from a learning perspective. But um, – Sorry, what was your question initially? You asked me something else and I've gone on off it on a tangent. Literally, I said, can we do another talk on one about Botox oh, and Botox. another one about kids? Yeah, yeah. so that's why I, I think um, I mentioned that. So the ENT that I work with gives the Botox. I mean, I could give it if I wanted to, but she um, she does it and I, and I sort of always watch and, and I'm interested to see how she goes about what she does. But the thing is that she never uses it as a first uh, approach. It's always Botox is like the last. It's like the the rook on the chessboard. It's like the last line of defense. Um, but it's a great circuit breaker. If you've got someone that can't open their mouth um, and the physio can't help them or you feel like the physio is probably not going to be able to help them immediately and muscle relaxants won't help them and all the rest of it, it's a great circuit breaker because what happens is patients who are – chronic clenches and grinders have so much built up muscle hypertrophy that that the circuit breaker is making them not use their muscles. So if they're not using their muscles of mastication because they can't use them because they've been frozen with Botox, all of a sudden 
the muscle starts to atrophy because it's not being used as much or as with as much force. And so what happens then is when they do go to clench again in a few weeks' time, hopefully by that stage when, you know, eventually when the Botox wears off and they go to clench again, you've actually given them all the tools to be able to help themselves. So they've pulled themselves out of the hole and they're now not reliant on the Botox anymore to get them out of trouble. The idea with Botox, with TMD management, is not to just continually keep giving it. It's to act as a circuit breaker along with the other nine circuit breakers that you've entrusted with the, them with so that they can go and live their lives and be functional and mobile and happy. Yeah, yeah, and also make it more likely for other treatments to be effective like physio or being ad- adapting to a splint or whatever it might be. I guess it's kind of like you take antidepressants so that they're more open to um, psychology or, you know, as a temp- as a circuit breaker, yeah, not that they're going to stay on it forever but that. And the other thing is sometimes Botox may not be a sort of may not help if it's more of a joint related problem rather than a muscle problem which if you do any sleep or pain course they'll teach you how to diagnose the difference between like an arthralgia or a myalgia or a disc displacement um versus uh you know an arthritic sort of tmj so understanding the different diagnoses is really key in terms of what treatment you provide. That's what I was trying to get at before in terms of even sometimes the splint therapy that you provide, whether you have a little bit more um, weight towards the posteriors or a little bit towards more towards the anteriors is dependent on whether it's more of a muscle or a joint related pain. So a lot of one of the real gold standard tests we do to check for joint pain amongst a whole bunch of other tests, palpation and percussion testing is you get the patient to bite on a paddle pop stick or a flat stick. And if there is pain elicited on the contralateral side, that is the side that is opposite to the side that you've asked them to bite on the paddle pop stick, that's pretty much a gold standard big tick that they've got a joint-related pain rather than a muscular pain. They might have both as well, but it's that gives you an idea that there's more at play rather than just a myalgia alone. Yeah, I feel like that was just the tip of the iceberg with the, like, in terms of diagnostic uh, methods um, or your investigative questioning. Clinical examination. I mean, when you have a feel of their muscles, if their muscles feel tense and taut and they wince when you press them, it's pretty clear that there's a muscular, there's there's an issue. Um, If one side is more hypertrophied than the other and the jaw swings towards one side, there's clearly a physio referral there because the physio will help them build up the other side so that their jaw doesn't swing. Because what happens when you have a jaw that swings is it starts to cause derangement within the joint or it might actually be indicative of derangement within the joint. So that kind of stuff that we probably got taught at dental school, like check if the you know the, your jaw deviates and we just sort of disband. Like I kind of did away with that years ago, even looking for stuff like that. But now I'm like looking well, We just at, didn't know what it meant. Absolutely. and Even if it does deviate. Yeah, I'm like why does it matter if their jaw deviates? Who cares, right? But it's actually a really big telltale when you piece it together with um, sort of an unbalanced hypertrophy, atrophy situation with a jaw with the way that the TMJ is functioning that yeah it's 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 a fascinating field I, I really think people should 
dig their teeth into it more, pardon the pun, because it's there's such a big difference we can make. Yeah. And what about um, uh, like there, a lot of people have sinus obstruction, sinus um, septal deviations that they just can't do any mouth closed nasal breathing throughout their sleep. That's an easy one to pick up because you might be able to actually get other signs from the patient, from their saliva, from the um, from what they talk about when they wake up in the morning, if they wake up with bad breath or if the, if whoever they sleep next to finds that they're snoring or sleep with their mouth open. So that there's lots of ways to sort of determine that. Sometimes you can hear from the way someone is speaking that they're a bit more nasal in their tone. But all of those sort of things may warrant an ENT referral um, and, and your patients will thank you for it. But there's definitely things that we can do way upstream before we even refer to the ENT that's going to make a big difference to how they function and, and, and how they live. Thank you so much for listening to the Dental Head Start podcast. I genuinely hope this is helping you become a better dentist. So if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe on your podcast player and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to social media and share something that you've appreciated from us with one of your friends. That's how the word gets out. That's how more people gain and benefit from what we're doing. And if you're a dental student or a graduate and you want to get a head start, go to dentalheadstart.com to find everything we're doing to help dental students become great dentists.